Lord Jesus Christ, lead me. My name is Deacon James. I am a Christian and a deacon in the Antiochian Orthodox Church. This is the first of eight podcasts designed to assist people with their relationship with God. The topic for this first podcast is Revelation and Phronima. Phronima is a Greek word which means worldview, outlook, or mindset. An Orthodox Christian and biblical worldview is always receptive to God's self-revelation. We only know what God has revealed. In this podcast, we are going to examine a prayer from the Orthodox Christian liturgy that speaks of God's revelation, which assists us in our phronemic worldview. After that prayer, we will examine five sections from the Bible, which are witnesses of God's self-revelation. Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thine unoriginate Father, and then all go- holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. This prayer assumes an ongoing relationship with God. God is not distant, but God is as close to us as our hearts and our minds, as the prayer indicates thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. The prayer begins, Illumine our hearts, O Master, illumine us now, you who love mankind, and illumine us with light, pure light, of divine knowledge. Reveal to us the things that are good to know. Open our eyes of our mind to understand your gospel teachings. These are all sentences and phrases of revelation, how God reveals himself. When he reveals, it is like a light opening up to us, which comes through our eyes to the mind, and it speaks of truth through words, through visions. Implant in us the fear of your blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing. There is an interesting juxtaposition here between trampling down all carnal desires and enter upon a spiritual manner of living. The carnal desires speaks of our material faculties, our senses, what we think, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can hear. And sometimes those material faculties limit us in our understanding of spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing. An orthodox phronema or worldview assumes every day that there is an opportunity that God is present and that we are present with God. Unfortunately, at times, our carnal desires force us to not understand God's earthly presence. If we can't see him, then a modern worldview suggests that God must not be there. If we can't smell him or taste him, well, then he must not exist. If we can't hear his voice, well, then he must not be close to us. He must be distant. How can a God who lives up there, far away, up in the sky, in space, illumine our souls and bodies? How can he be close to our hearts and minds? 
a modern worldview is often expressed by critics of Christianity when they refer to God as Sky Daddy, as if somehow Christians believe a God who is up in space but not down on earth, who is far away, not as close to us as our own flesh and blood. The carnal desires, then, can lead us astray by assuming that we must only feel and experience God through our particular senses. This prayer reminds us that it is more than that, and that if our carnal desires are separated from a spiritual manner, then we risk not having any sort of relationship with God as God has revealed himself. This is the kind of orthodox phonema that assumes that God is present here, even now, on earth, where heaven and earth are in communication with one another, establishing a communion that speaks to our hearts and can be implanted into our minds. With this, we're going to turn to the first piece of scripture for tonight's, for this, uh, for this podcast, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Verse 10, finally, St. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This verse is assuming there's some sort of relationship with God. What is revealed to us but that God is strong and mighty and that we have an opportunity to be a part of that strength and that mightiness. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. The Greek word that is translated as wiles is methodius, which is methods, suggesting that the devil has all kinds of methods and ways to lead us astray. Perhaps that is what the carnal desires were referring to in the prayer. Verse 12, For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is a very powerful verse. First of all, St. Paul suggests we don't contend against flesh and blood, meaning fellow human beings. These are not our enemies. We should never think of other men and women as the evil ones who are destroying us. Instead, we should recognize that the real evil destroying us or attempting to destroy us are the principalities, the powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, who are all the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That suggests a cosmic enemy, even enemies who are invisible to us, enemies that cannot even be accessed by our, spirit, by our carnal desires, but are accessed to us through a kind of spirituality that is more or even other than flesh and blood. That means that human beings who are evil are those who have given themselves over to demons and devils. Perhaps you've heard of theosis. This verse suggests a kind of theosis of demons, a kind of false evil demonization with demons that wreck humans, humans' hearts and human minds. Consider Adam and Eve. They were moved and deceived by the devil who sowed evil into their hearts and minds until they voluntarily decided to follow along. St. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. 
in the scriptures, the idea of standing is the idea of establishing yourself. Make yourself strong and firm. The armor of God is meant to be a defense mechanism so that when these evil forces come to you, if you are strong with God's armor, you may be able to repel the attacks of the enemies. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Now in these two verses, 14 and 15, we have three spiritual weapons that Paul has identified. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. Here are three ways, weapons, that God is revealing to us that if we hold fast to them and even wield them, we can defend ourselves against the enemy. Truth, righteousness, and peace. These are accessed particularly through our hearts, through our minds, in a more spiritual sense that is other than our carnal desires. Verse 16. Besides all of these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now in these two verses, 16 and 17, St. Paul is identifying faith, which is connected with the Spirit, who is now described as a sword, which is accessed through the word of God. Now we have more spiritual weapons, which will allow us to do what Paul says in verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Here we have a way in which God, in which St. Paul is describing how God reveals himself to us even now in our own day with particular weapons that we can use to remain strong and firm as humans of flesh and blood that now have access to commune with the spiritual realm. Let us take a look at Exodus chapter 2 at the end of the ver at the end of the chapter. In Exodus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This activity of Moses, he looked this way and that, suggesting that he didn't believe anybody would see him. That would include God. So he thinks he has an opportunity to commit murder when nobody is looking and nobody is seen. In this verse, it suggests that our father in the faith, Moses, didn't have a sense, a spiritual sense, of God's presence even then and even now. If we continue of verse 13, When Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man that did the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Since our father Moses thought that he got away with the murderer, he then discovered that he did not. Somebody did see him, which suggests that always in our life there is always someone who sees us. 
This is what is dangerous about a modern worldview when we assume that the sky daddy is up in heaven and cannot see us. Too often, then, we are led to think that if we are alone, by ourselves, isolated, no one will see the things that we do. This is a dangerous worldview, as it might, as if when we are lonely and we think nobody's watching, if for whatever reason we are feeling bad or feeling depressed, we might turn to coping mechanisms, since we believe there's no one there to help us. Coping mechanisms. Maybe we binge eat too much, or maybe we watch television too much, or maybe we look at pornography because we don't think anybody's watching, or maybe we turn to drugs and alcohol. All of these sort of activities that's, that people do in isolation when they don't think anybody is watching. We get a glimpse of this from even our father Moses in the faith who commits murder because he thinks nobody is watching. Let us skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And Moses looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And, Moses, and God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses' reaction to this extraordinary encounter, to this extraordinary revelation, Moses' reaction is one of shame and guilt. This is a moment of judgment. Moses thinks he's being judged. He now realizes that the things that he committed before, the murder that he committed, God even saw it. And now he's meeting God in, the, in, the present, in presence, in his, in his presence. In which you'll notice that God asks Moses, take your shoes from your feet, have naked feet, which recalls back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were naked without shame, without guilt. There was nothing to hide. In this case now, God is calling Moses back to that idea that there is nothing to hide. Why are you hiding your deeds? Why are you now hiding your face? Interesting that God's voice comes through the fire that is not burning anything up. There's an old phrase, of course, when you play with fire, you get burned. Moses is intrigued because the bush is not burning. What Moses thinks is about to happen to him is that he is going to get burned. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, 
that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? This is an extraordinary encounter. Moses still thinking he's been judged is now being asked to commit a task for which he, don't, he does not think he's worthy. Such is the extraordinary calls from God. When God calls and asks us to be a part of something with which we don't believe we can do, it appears that in this case, God has more faith in our father Moses than our father Moses has faith in himself, which also suggests our father Moses may not have, may not have much faith in God either. Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you. Here is the verse of Revelation and the promise of God's presence even on the earth. And this shall be a sign for you, God continues, that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? This question is, Moses is still doubting. He's not sure what, what, he's not sure who this person is. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am who has sent me to you. Perhaps when you've been in an Orthodox church, you've seen an Orthodox icon of Jesus, the Son of God, that has a halo around his head. And in that halo, you can see three forms of the cross, and around the cross are three little Greek letters, which are which we can read as ho'on. Well, in this phrase, I am who I am, in Greek, it is translated ego me ho'on. In Orthodox iconography, they recognize Jesus' voice to be one of, to be this voice who is speaking here to our Father Moses. I am who I am. The God has now, the God of all heavens and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has now revealed himself and given a name, his own self-chosen name, to Moses. And Moses is to announce that self-chosen name to the Israelites and then on to Pharaoh. Let us move ahead to a different section of scripture. Turn to the New Testament, John chapter 8 beginning with verse 39. This is an argument between Jesus and some of the Jews of his day who were having, who were having issues with the things that Jesus was doing and saying. The Jews answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You do what your father did. So they claim, the Jews claim Abraham is their father. Jesus is claiming, no, you have a different kind of father. A very bold claim by Jesus. The Jews, verse 41, the Jews said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So now the Jews identify who they believe their father is by their genealogical line, which is why they say we were not born of fornication. We have always believed in God, and our God is known as our father. 
Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and came forth from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. These are extraordinarily bold claims of Jesus. And notice that his worldview, Jesus is accusing them of not having the kind of phronema that would assume the constant continuing presence of God. Jesus' accusation back to them is that they don't even really know who God is, because if they did, they would recognize God when God shows himself in the flesh and even speaks words to them about the truth of whom they claim to be their father. Notice the real enemies here are not the Jews. The real enemy is the devil, the father of lies, who has now even continued his murderous ways right through these Jews. We should pity these Jews, for they've been led astray, and they've been given themselves over to a kind of murderous lie themselves. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I have not a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he will be the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, an extraordinary claim from Jesus. For now he himself is claiming that anyone who believes in him, that trusts his presence, that trusts his words, that keeps his words, they will not die. Before in verse 50, he also indicates there is one who seeks his glory and he will be the judge. This is a bit of play on words. We know from Matthew, the last chapters of Matthew, Matthew records in his gospel that Jesus indicates that he is the judge. This, once, this implies that both Jesus and his Father are working in perfect communion, perfect harmony. And as one judges, the other will judge. As one disagrees, the other will disagree. Let us continue, though. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. In other words, these Jews are scandalized by these very bold claims of Jesus. Verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I said I do not know him, I should be like a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. 
the Jews and said to him, You are not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Notice, what trips up the Jews here? They cannot get past time. For Jesus is indicating that time was not a problem for him. He was at the time of Abraham. He was possibly at other times throughout history. He, again, a very bold claim that he is something more than what they simply see with their eyes and what they hear with their ears, more than what is seen from their carnal desires. Which is why in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So the Jews took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, an extraordinary claim by Jesus who claims, I am. And the Jews, which is why they picked up stones to stone him, is because they understood Jesus was associating himself with that very one who spoke to the, our father Moses in the burning of the bush that was, con, that was not consumed. So now they understand that Jesus is claiming himself to be divine, to be God, to be at one with their father, and they do not see it because their worldview, their phronema, has been wrecked by demons. Notice closely in 59, though, Jesus hid himself. This is very common with God throughout the Old Testament. There are various sections where he says, no one can see God and live. God hide him, hides himself in some ways from humanity, because if he fully revealed himself, he would be like the sun and the stars that would burn people up, because he's simply way too much for us to handle. A beautiful Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh. The incarnation of God in the womb of Mary gives him a cloak of sorts, if you will, when he shows himself in the flesh so that God can now access people personally, relationship, touching them personally. Throughout the Gospels, it's very common that people will touch him and they're healed. They touch him and power flows out of him because God, in a sense, is placing, is emptying himself into the flesh so that now God can relate to mankind and now mankind can relate back to God and see his revelation now in their bodies. Let us take a look at a third self-revelation of God in Matthew chapter 3, beginning verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. This is an extraordinary self-revelation of God, and this is one of the few times in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, where the three persons of the Heavenly Trinity are revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see Jesus standing in the water with John's hand on his head in the ritual of baptism. We see the presence of the Holy Spirit of God after the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove. And then we hear the voice from the opened heavens saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. An extraordinary claim. There are only three times in the New Testament where the voice of the Father is recorded. Here in the baptism of Jesus, a second time at the transfiguration of Jesus, where the voice of the Father says, similarly, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And a third time in the Gospel of John, during what is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus that is recorded in chapters 13 through 17, where the voice of the Father is heard saying, this is my name, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And St. John says they heard that voice like a thunder. But back to the baptism of Jesus, since it follows patterns of the Old Testament. Consider, we have this event happening in water, which parallels the Red Sea of the Israelites, who were led by the presence of God, which was hidden in, in smoke and in fire at that time. When they are through the water, then they are sent into the wilderness for 40, for 40 years. Similarly, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. The wilderness is a biblical image of the wild places, the places of not order, the places where uh, things could either go good or things could go bad. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were cast out into the wilderness after they had sinned. That was part of the curse, to go live in the places of the wild, to determine if things will go good or things will go bad. Before they were cast out, the charge to Adam and Eve and to all mankind was to have dominion of the earth, fulfill it, subdue it, Bring order to the chaos. Bring beauty to the creation. Continue the creation that was in the garden. We see this happening with Noah's Ark after the great flood of the world, which again, another event with water. When Noah and the Ark lands on ground, which is led by the dove of the Spirit, then Noah then repopulates the earth, brings order back to the wilderness by sending out the animals two by two, by now repopulating the humanity with, uh, with his sons and daughters. The self-revelation of God was hinted at in these patterns in the Old Testament, now fulfilling themselves with all righteousness through the baptism of Jesus and the revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this way, John the Baptist becomes a co-operator with this creating work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John here becomes an icon of what you and I can become.
being graced by God to join him in the continuing of the heavenly creation, even on earth, in this self-revelation. The, the last section of scripture that we're going to take a look at is in Acts chapter 2. Starting at verse 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the apostles, were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The sound coming from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. At the baptism of Jesus, the heavens were opened, and the Spirit came forth. Here again, the heavens are opened, and the Spirit comes forth. Just as the burning bush, Moses heard the, the voice of God through the fire. Now fire is resting on the apostles as tongues, which do not burn them up as the fire didn't burn up the bush. Now it's not even going to burn up the apostles. The Spirit, which rested on Jesus in his baptism, is now the Spirit resting on the apostles, speaking words of God about the Word of God, as they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Christ's way of making himself present through the Spirit in the apostles. Let us continue. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these the speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? That recalls the Heavenly Father's words of Jesus at the Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Now Jesus is being heard through the apostolic preaching with the sending out of the Holy Spirit. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The entire inhabited earth at that time was now hearing the revelation of God. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Jump down to verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And then skip down to verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Peter now interprets this Old Testament prophecy, let's say five, six hundred, maybe eight hundred years before him, now coming true in that day. And Peter is now a part of that fulfilled prophecy of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. Sons and daughters now prophesy according to Joel. Young men shall see visions, old men shall see shall dream dreams. These are all the notion of hope coming true of a new place, a new time, better days ahead. I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. 
Skip down to verse 22. Peter continues his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. That's a verse testifying to the revelation of God in the person of Jesus through his activity. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Similar to our father Moses, who thought no one was looking and murdered a man. Now these Jews thought God wasn't looking, and in fact they think they're going to do a service for God by crucifying and killing Jesus of Nazareth. Peter continues in verse 24, But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Thus, Jesus, descending to the places of the dead, processing through the places of the dead, grabbing Adam and Eve and lifting them up by knocking down the gates of Hades, as you see in the icon of the resurrection. This is one of those verses of Scripture that led Christians to write those icons and paint those icons of Jesus of the resurrection, bringing, opening up the tombs and releasing all those who were therein. Peter continues in verse 29. Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, that being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the Apostle Peter offering the first Christian sermon, the first of apostolic preaching, which will become the foundation of the revelation of God into the minds and ears and hearts of all those who would listen. This is how the spiritual manner of living and thinking, of both doing and thinking, is more than what we simply see with our senses, for our senses draw us into something more, something greater something God. Verse 37. Now when the men heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Notice the promise to you and your children is the, the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And notice that God will call who he will call, but some simply will not listen and will not be chosen. But notice Peter's preaching 
of the revelation of God even in his presence. It comes in four marks, if you will, back in verse 38. Repent, baptize, forgiveness, Holy Spirit. When these things are happening in our presence among human activity, we then can expect the revelation of God happening. Repent, baptize, forgive, Holy Spirit. And though there is a succession of an order there, through our human activity, it doesn't always come that way. Consider infants who are baptized who have not yet repented. That's okay. Baptism is meant to be a lifelong commitment of repentance. Consider forgiveness incredibly important to Christianity. For just as God has forgiven much of the world for their bad activity, just as God forgave our father Moses for murdering that man, so also there's all sorts of forgivenesses that we can have from God, which should inspire us through the Holy Spirit to forgive others. Verse 40, And Peter testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Now we have four more marks, if you will, about the formula or revelation or encounter of God among humans, among humankind. So the church here, after repent, baptize, forgive in the Holy Spirit, now they're going to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. For the apostles' teaching was where the voice of the Spirit was heard. The fellowship here is translated from the Greek, the kinonia, and that kinonia would become a word regarding the communion of mankind with God, which would be featured in the chief action of community of Christian services, the breaking of the bread, which would later be called the Eucharist. And then at the last, we have our first reference, or let's say another reference, to the church's liturgical practice when it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. I'll say a little bit more about the prayers in the coming verses. Verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Just as wonders and signs, the mighty works of God were seen in Jesus of Nazareth in his works, now those wonders and signs are occurring through the apostles themselves, the disciples of Jesus, who have now been anointed with the same Holy Spirit. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to them all as any had need. Here we have Christian culture beginning to uh, reveal itself based on the revelation of God. They believed together and had all things in common, voluntarily. So they shared their goods with one another. This is also the first description of Christian culture and the, uh, the donation of goods or the donation of money. But it's all free will. We do this freely with one another, as God has freely done for us. There is no rule here other than the rules that we determine for ourselves that will reflect the great love that God has had for us, the love that he has inspired us to have for him, 
and now the love that he inspires us to have for one another. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here the life of the church is where the action of salvation occurs. And it, that life of, and that salvation in the life of the church happens through repentance, baptism, forgiveness, Holy Spirit, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And notice that day by day, attending the temple together, for the early Christians continued in the Jewish assemblies, following those prescripted prayer orders, the prayers, which would then inform their souls about the revelations of God and allow them to come up with their own sorts of prayers as they apply those prayers to themselves. And then the breaking of the bread begins to occur in their own homes. Just as all believed together and had all things in common, they sold their possessions and good and distributed them to them all, some of those early Christians devoted their own homes to become the first church homes or house churches, where the, where the Eucharistic breaking of the bread begins to happen as Christians assemble themselves together. This is the beginning of the church buildings to which we have to this day. And the Lord has added to their number day by day, just as the Lord continues in our day to add to his number day by day those who are being saved. That includes you and me, who now have opportunity to live as with that worldview as if God is present now among us, where two or three are gathered around the Holy Eucharist of God and the apostolic preaching through the reading of the gospel, through the preaching of the sermons. Let us return to Ephesians chapter 6 and reread St. Paul's words, now having seen and encountered these revelations of God. Beginning with verse 13. Therefore take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, the same truth that comes through repentance and baptism and forgiveness and Holy Spirit, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the same righteousness that is taught through the apostolic teaching, the same righteousness that is encountered through kinonia with the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the same righteousness that we pray about through the prayers. And having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, the same gospel of peace that is proclaimed in Christian liturgical assemblies, the same gospel of peace that is written down and proclaimed in the Bible. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and pray at all times in the spirit. Thanks to God's self-revelation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the liturgical practice of the church, we now have direct revelation and encounter with the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In conclusion, let us return to the opening prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. 
implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. Here is the orthodox phronema. Here is the revelation of God revealed right into our minds, right into our hearts. And here is a summary of apostolic preaching, since in our Christian liturgy, this prayer is read by the priest during the epistle reading, every liturgy right before the gospel is proclaimed to the people. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thine unoriginate Father, and then all good, holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, lead me, for you do lead me, continue to lead me.